In clinical trials, it causes between 15 to 18% loss of body weight. So this is kind of 5% is kind of the threshold for a drug, a weight loss drug to be considered effective. So it's just like completely smashing the threshold for effectiveness and also every other weight loss drug that has regulatory approval right now completely dominates. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to have a returning, a returning guest in Dr. Stefan Guillenay to talk all things around obesity and weight loss. Welcome back, Stefan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I reached out to you recently to pick your brains on a couple topics that's um, been trending and um, becoming better known in, around the role of ultra-processed foods and what they play in uh, developing and promoting obesity and also the uh, recent um, explosion in the research on some weight loss drugs which show a lot of promise. So I thought I'd pick your brains on these topics. Um, Before we jump into those, uh, perhaps if we can just um, go back to we got you on the first podcast. We're promoting your book, The Hungry Brain, which I think is a fantastic book. Can you just give us a bit of an outline sketch of your background and um, the motivation for writing your book? Yeah, sure. So I did a uh, BS in biochemistry at the University of Virginia, uh, went on to do a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Washington, and I was studying neurodegenerative disease at the time ended up transitioning to uh, studying the neuroscience of obesity for my postdoc work. And that was with Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington and uh, really became fascinated with the brain's influence on eating behavior and body fatness. And I mean, I think the brain's influence on eating behavior is obvious because all behaviors are generated by the brain. But I think a lot of people don't uh, aren't aware of the fact that the brain also regulates body fatness in a in a kind of more comprehensive manner. And uh, the evidence for this was really quite strong at the time that I was doing my postdoc, but it's only gotten stronger since then. But it wasn't at the time really getting to the public in a kind of uh, intelligible and comprehensive way. And so that's what I tried to solve with my book, The Hungry Brain. Uh, The argument that I make in the book is that our eating behavior and body fatness is uh, strongly influenced by ancient survival circuits in the brain that are largely non-conscious that evolved to promote the survival of our distant ancestors, but that are essentially not helping us anymore in the modern world because our world has changed so much they're playing by the rules of a game that doesn't exist anymore and that that is why we tend to overconsume and put on more fat than than we would like um 
yeah. And so my book was published in 2018, I think. And um, since then, just been doing some science communication and, and other activities, including um, Red Pen Reviews, where we publish evidence-based reviews of popular nutrition books. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that at the end, the Red Pen Reviews. So back to your book. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned 2018. A lot's unfolded since then in terms of obesity research. Um, so I was hypothetically, if you were to release a Hungry Brain second edition, what um, I, I sense that a lot of the things that have developed since has validated your position. Anything you'd add or edit or um, areas you'd maybe minimize or emphasize? Yeah, yeah. So you know, science has kept progressing and some of the things, some of the work that's been done uh, strengthens or expands on things I've written in my book and some things that have been published, if I could go back, I would write it differently now. So um, in the first category, we have, um, you know, we have now this incredible weight loss drug, Wegovy, that maybe we'll be talking about later that is a drug that essentially acts in the brain. And so this really validates the, you know, brain-centric model of understanding obesity that by far the most effective uh, regulatory approved drug that we have available is a drug that acts on the brain. So that's, that's one thing that I would, I would definitely include if I could. Um, and then um, there's a lot of research that's come out that's really fleshed out our understanding of how food reward works. So essentially how consuming food contributes to our motivational drive to eat. And um, so we know now a lot more about how the gut detects the substances in the food that we consume and how that signal gets up to the brain to generate that motivation and learning process that is a natural part of eating, but can get a little bit out of control and cause us to have strong cravings and hard to control eating behavior. So that is uh, another area that has, uh, has really developed quite a bit since I wrote the book. And an area where I think things have changed a bit and where I would uh, have written it differently is that there's research that's come out recently suggesting that physical activity has less of an impact on total energy expenditure than was commonly mm. believed mm. in the long run. So essentially, you know, we have this idea that you do exercise and you burn a certain number of calories and that contributes to your overall calorie balance sheet in a kind of simple, predictable way. And it's true that if you, you know, run a certain amount, you know, a certain distance, you will burn a predictable number of calories. However, what happens is over long periods of time, the body adapts and it cuts back. If, if you have a habitually high physical activity level over time, your body adapts yeah. and it cuts back in other places. And so the total amount of energy that you're burning doesn't go up as much as we used to think. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the the current understanding that Herman Ponser's research is contributing to. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, I, in, in the book talked about, uh, body fatness being determined by energy in and energy out. And it still is, but I think the energy out piece is just more complicated than we thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had Herman and Ponzo here on the podcast and okay. I, yeah. I think, um, your, your book's brilliant for weight loss and his book's brilliant for understanding metabolism. So yeah, I think that reinforces his views obviously about, um, it's important. Exercise is really important, but it's not good for weight loss. But it's probably good for everything else. And I like this. I this there was an energy compensation model where, um, if you put more more of your calories into exercise, then maybe there's fewer to go around for stressing out about things and worry about things and making too many sex hormones and so forth. Yeah, um, that's right. And I think I think it's also important to note that. Um, not all of the people in that field think the effect is as robust as Herman thinks it is. And so it may turn out that the truth is somewhere in the middle where exercise does. I mean, if you, if you ask Herman, he will say that physical activity on the low end, like going from very low to moderate will actually increase your total energy expended somewhat, but then it kind of, you know, hits a, hits a ceiling effect. I think, you know, there, we have randomized controlled trials of energy expenditure or of exercise interventions showing that energy expenditure does go up and it is dose dependent with the amount of exercise. So, but it's not as much as you would predict. So I think some would argue that the truth is kind of somewhere in the middle that it does affect your energy expenditure to some degree, but not as much as, as we used to think. It did. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the sense I've gotten from talking with people. I think, you know, there's still more research to be done on this to, to really get a, uh, more confident sense. But the other thing that I want to point out is that I think there's, so exercise, you know, we have randomized controlled trials on exercise. And if you look at the ones where they actually enforced and verified that people actually did the exercise, there is weight loss that occurs. So it's not as much as you would expect from a naive model, but weight loss does occur. So I don't think it's accurate to say that it's totally ineffective. I think it is accurate to say it's not as effective as we thought it was or that we w- wished it would be for the average person. And I think it's also accurate to say it's generally less powerful of a lever than diet if your goal is specifically to reduce body fatness. Yeah. The other little caveat I want to put on is that exercise seems to be pretty effective for maintaining weight loss. And it also seems less we we have less like great evidence in this area but i think the evidence points in the direction of it also being effective for preventing weight gain in the first place yeah so like if you're a person who has obesity and you want to lose weight and you just start exercising it's probably not going to cause very much weight loss but if you go on a low calorie diet or whatever your preferred diet is to lose weight and then you just want to maintain that weight loss, it actually exercise could be one of the best things you could do. 
And if you're someone who just doesn't want to gain weight over time, as most people do, exercise could also maybe be effective. We need more yeah. research, but I think that's where the evidence is pointing. So I think like sometimes in my opinion, in these discussions, it gets lost that there actually is this beneficial relationship between exercise and body fatness. It's just that it's not, it just doesn't quite have the, it's not exactly of the nature that we thought it was initially. Yeah. yeah. And, and Herman's like research has, has yeah. been really helpful in clarifying that. Um, and I sense it's probably a bit of a bell-shaped curve where you have your hyper-responders and your under-responders or low-responders um, around exercise, which gets me on to another point I wanted to ask you about. I've noticed you've mentioned this a little bit on social media. You, you follow um, genetic studies quite well and I think um, are, are great at translating and interpreting those. Um, Sorry to sort of <laughs> um, put you on the spot here, but any studies or findings that jumped out of the past few years, I think you've discussed things like um, motivation for phys like physical activity, um, and I think there's been some studies like looking at trying to determine causation around the role of insulin in um, weight gain as well. So can you just yeah give us an outline on some of the genetic studies that have really caught your attention? Yeah, you can I any? mean... Some of the genetic studies that I pay the most attention to are the genome-wide association studies that are um, essentially try to identify the gene variants that contribute to differences in body fatness between individuals in, in the general population. And so uh, I think a good starting point here is just to point out that differences in body fatness are highly genetic. So if you look at twin studies, they suggest that something like 75% of the differences in body fatness between people is genetic. Um, so first step is to recognize that there is a strong genetic influence. And then the second step is to say, what are these genes doing? And so, so far they've identified like 700 different genes, 900, something like that, um, uh, different gene variants. So essentially places in the genome where there are differences between people in a population and those differences are linked to differences in weight. And when you look at what those genes are doing, it gives you some insight into what causes differences in body fatness between people living their everyday lives in the general population. And that I think is an angle on answering the question, what makes us fat? It tells mm -hmm. us the biological mechanisms that are involved in making some people fat, fatter than others. And when we look at that, what we see is that the data overwhelmingly suggests that differences in brain development and brain function are what make some people fatter than others. So, and that's not to say that there aren't other things involved, but it's very, very clear that the brain that regarding the genetics, the brain is, is the dominant organ. So these genes are heavily, heavily enriched for genes that affect genes that are expressed in the brain and affect brain development and brain function. Yeah. And, um, they seem to be involved in 
a variety of brain systems. So you have some that are involved in the classical um, areas of the brain that are, that we know are involved in appetite and body fat regulation, like the hypothalamus. And then there are others related to uh, hippocampus, which is related to memory and learning and uh, other regions of the brain related to emotional regulation. So there may, there may be, you know, a, n- a number of different brain mechanisms that kind of plug in to this um, process of determining who is fatter and who is not. Um, and then some of the other data that have been coming out are looking at um, what do these genes like, okay, so they affect how our brain works, but what does that do? Why does that make us fatter? Does it have to do with the types of foods we tend to select? Mm-hmm. Does it have to do with our eating behaviors? What does it have to do with? And so um, what these studies have determined is that some of what these genes do is they affect how we interact with food. So they cause us to have more disinhibited eating. So we can be more responsive to food cues. So if you smell something delicious, you might be more likely to just grab it and eat it. Um, they can make us feel more hungry. They can um, cause us to have less satiety, fullness as we eat. So it takes more food for us to feel full. Um, they can cause us to be more susceptible to emotional eating. So those are some of the pathways that have um, been identified. They can make us more susceptible to tasty foods too, more reward sensitive. So those are some of the, the kind of traits that have been identified. And then if we look at, if we look at it at the food level, those genes tend to favor or a very recent study suggests that those genes tend to favor the consumption of higher fat and fattier foods as well as sugar sweetened beverages. Right. So for whatever reason, people with this kind of unlucky set of genes, their brains kind of nudge them more in the direction of eating more fattening foods. So those are those are some of the findings. Um, you also alluded to one on the causal impact of physical activity on um, body mass index, uh, on body fatness. So you, th- there are studies called Mendelian randomization studies that can use the random, the fact that genes are kind of randomly assorted in the population to treat it kind of like a randomized controlled trial and say, when someone has these genes that cause this particular trait, what does what impact does that have on this other trait of interest? So for example, if you have genes that cause you to be fatter, does that, or, or let's say, yeah, if, if you have genes that cause you to be fatter, does that also give you a higher risk of diabetes, for example? Right. And they've shown that, yes, if you have gene variants that make you fatter, it makes you more likely to have type 2 diabetes. Um, as, as one would expect. And so they've done this with physical activity. They've said, if you have genes, cause physical activity level also has a genetic component. So mm. some people have genes that cause them to 
be more likely to be physically active and vice versa. So if you have high physical activity genetics, does that cause you to be leaner? And they've, this study suggested that yes, if you have high physical activity genetics, it does lead you to be leaner. However, it goes in both directions. If you have high body fatness genetics, it causes you to be less physically active. Yeah. So the causality runs in both directions. If you exercise, you're less likely to develop obesity, but if you develop obesity, you're also less likely to exercise, presumably because, you know, you it's harder for you to exercise. And so you have this very strong correlation between obesity and physical activity, but it's explained by causality going in both directions. Fascinating. Yeah, it um, makes me think about, and there's a lot of criticism about like just, you know, move more, eat less. Like, yeah, but some people <laughs> are genetically, you know, predisposed to eating more and, and moving less. It's it's um, maybe those, again, those sort of hyper-responders that can preach that it's easy and you do this certain diet and, you know, you can do all this activity, works for them, so why can't, you know, you do it? But, yeah, it really makes me empathetic to um, people that maybe got, you know, the the, the um, poor genetic hand in um, they've been dealt with. So, yeah, um, simple simple messages, but sometimes hard to follow. Um, so I wanted to use that piece around the genes that make us more um, seduced by these foods to to look at um, one concept. Well, want to look at two concepts today: the ultra processed foods, and then um, some of these new weight loss, loss drugs. But I'll start with um, the ultra processed foods. This resonates similar to what you were talking about in your book about highly palatable foods and refined foods and processed foods, but there's a few like new, little nuances in it that I wanted to tease out with you. So, first of all, like ultra processed foods are now they've got like an official sort of label and category. Can we start with that? Um, they've been defined technically. Can you describe this system of um, classification? Yeah. So there are different classification systems, but the one that is most commonly used as far as I'm aware is the NOVA food classification system. Um, and this comes from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, and it has four different categories. So group one is unprocessed or minimally processed foods. This these are foods that are obtained directly from plants or animals and do not go any alteration except that they can be refined. They, there just can't be things added to them. So for example, um, whole, just to use grains as an example, whole wheat berries, whole wheat seeds would follow into group one. However, if you also ground them and turned it into white flour, that's still going to be in group one. So, and same for rice, brown rice is in group one, white rice is also in group one. So it's, it's been processed, but not in a way where they have made it more complex or added other things to it to make it, you know, much more calorie dense or palatable or, you know, that sort of thing. Group two is oils, fats, salt, and sugar. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Group three is processed foods. These are kind of 
these tend to be the more like traditional processed foods like uh, sausages and cheese. These are manufactured by industry with the use of salt, sugar, oil, or other substances added to natural or minimally processed food to preserve or make them more palatable. So yeah, bacon, uh, beef jerky, tomato paste, uh, beer, wine, those fall into group three. Group four is ultra processed foods. These are industrial foods made entirely or mostly from substances that are extracted from foods. So there's not a whole lot of unprocessed ingredients. Um, or, the, you know, they contain ingredients that are synthesized as well. So, um, and they use, they use manufacturing techniques and ingredients that would not really be available to the home cook, like extrusion, um, different chemical substances for color and flavor, or to act as preservatives. Usually these have a, a large number of ingredients. So packaged breads, pre-prepared pizza, um, fatty, sweet, or savory, or salty packaged snacks, ice cream, chocolate, soda, sports drinks, those types of things all fall into category four, ultra-processed foods. And if we look at the types of foods that people are eating in affluent industrial nations, they are predominantly, in most cases, ultra-processed foods. And that's particularly true of the countries that kind of have a reputation for uh, less robust food culture, like the United States, uh, the United Kingdom. But it's, it's very much true of many countries. Um, that even if it's not the majority, there's a very high percentage of ultra processed foods in the diet. But I also want to point out that, you know, this ranking system or classification system is a little controversial for reasons that I think, you know, you can guess at from how I've described it. White flour is in group one, unprocessed or mi minimally processed butter and you know lard is in group two oils fat salt and sugar uh you know sugar is in group two so you can do you can do a lot of fattening unhealthy things with white flour butter and lard and sugar yeah um so it doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy that it is you know considered unprocessed or min minimally processed according to this classification and similarly in group four, ultra-processed, you can have like store-bought bread that is considered ultra-processed, but it's but by far the main ingredient is whole wheat, you know, whole wheat flour. So I think that there's some controversy about how uh, whether this is really the optimal tool for measuring the health impact of foods yeah interesting um and were you pleased to realize that you're a bit of a um, home brewer aren't you? you you make a bit of cider so it falls in the category three you, you must feel good about that about your cider there you go <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah you raise a good point this is something that i've really grappled with um 
obviously there's the traditional, you know, food categorizations that the government recommend and, you know, we could probably comment about how a lot of the critics say that this has made people overweight, but the data shows no one follows these food guidelines about eating fruits and vegetables. Um, but in Australia, we have like this um, one one system they use is this star rating system where um, depending on the levels of a thing, it must be some algorithm. I've never actually looked at it in detail, but it's like um, fat, probably saturated fat, sugar, salt, and lack of fiber, maybe lack of protein um, demotes you and demotes the food and the inverse gives you a, a four or a four and a half or five star rating. But um, sometimes I look at these foods and I wonder if the the manufacturers gaming the system because yes, they're high in you know they got reasonable amounts of fiber and protein. But then you look at the the list of ingredients and it's really long and there's all these ultra processed ingredients in there. But I'm I'm unsure. Is it like like your bread discussion? By and large, it you know it often contains whole grains and um some less of those seductive elements but it's ultra processed which is it you know what's better to have a a sort of a processed five star or a you know um a traditional butter and salt and fat and lard and white 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 rice um meal yeah i mean they're gonna they're gonna try to game it as much as they can that's what they do yeah and so you have to be really um on your toes when you're evaluating the foods that you buy in the grocery store. Um, but yeah, I think that I, I you know, I, I don't want to criticize this too much because I think that if you look across a wide variety of commonly eaten foods, this classification system does correlate with diet quality and it does correlate with health outcomes. And so it's not useless. I would just say it's, maybe not perfect yeah so the conundrum i want to get to um is the trade-offs with these ultra processed foods it's it's nice to sort of sit in ivory towers and say avoid it but in reality a lot of people you know it's cheap it's accessible it's like clean it's free of you know microbial contamination it's all they have you know available it's all they can afford or they don't have the skills or the tools to, to cook um so uh, Kevin Hall, who you published with, um, he had an article recently about this idea to reformulate or eliminate. Um, so my question is, if we, if it were, people were to reformulate, what is it about ultra-processed foods that um, has this fattening component? Is it the, the lack of fiber? Is it the presence of sugar and fat? Or is there something around this sort of food matrix of processed foods? What's the <laughs> Any thoughts on some of the potential mechanisms of it increasing caloric consumption? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that um, one thing that I would put money on is that ultra processed foods tend to have a lower satiety value per calorie than unprocessed or minimally processed foods. So if you look at studies that have um, given people a wide variety of commonly consumed foods, and then they've measured how full people feel per unit calorie of those foods, or I I should, let me take a step back, give people calorie controlled portions of those foods and measured how full people feel over a two hour period. You can see that there are certain food properties that are consistently associated with feeling 
more full per calorie eaten or less full per calorie eaten. And those are calorie density. So the more calorie dense a food is, the less full you feel per calorie because a calorie has less volume when it's more calorie dense. It doesn't fill you up as much per calorie. And uh, palatability, so how good it tastes, the, the better it tastes, the less it fills you up. It's like your brain t- releases the, the brakes when it thinks that it, a food is particularly excellent. Um, foods that have more protein are more filling per calorie and foods that have more fiber are more filling per calorie. And if you look at ultra-processed foods, at least the types of ultra-processed foods that we kind of commonly intuitively accept as fattening, things like pizza and uh, fried foods, ice cream, uh, you know, hot dogs on white flour buns, where those foods have all of those properties, or at least most of those properties. Those foods tend to have most of the properties that make them less filling per calorie. And so what does that mean? That means that you have to eat more of them until you reach that point of feeling full, more calories of them, I should say, before you reach that point of feeling full. And then or, or if you eat the same amount of calories, then you're left still feeling hungry and you're probably going to eat shortly thereafter. So um, I think that I would definitely put my money on as one mechanism by which ultra-processed foods uh, cause us to eat more. Yeah. So I just want to touch upon... Um, Kevin Hall again, he did a, a study, I think I discussed this with Hammond Ponser as well, um, but I'm curious on your insights from it, this uh, study where they put people, subjects in this metabolic ward, so everything was controlled, they and they looked at the whole, they provided an ad-lib whole food diet um, versus an ad-lib um, ultra-processed uh, food diet. They were tried to match it as best they could for all the macronutrients and fibre, um, and they noticed after two weeks on each arm that I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what you'd expect um, is that ultra-processed food participants ate around 500 extra calories a day and they gained weight. Um, conversely, the, the whole food, um, unprocessed food dieters ate less and lost weight. Um, but some of the, the, the nuances I, I found interesting if you they've got some very colorful photos in the study and they, you see the meals and the um the the whole food diet looked quite quite nice and um they rated pleasantness in both groups and they were quite matched i don't know if pleasantness is a proxy for palatability so that made me sort of wonder you know or give me confidence that you still can have delicious whole foods you don't have to be too sort of spartan on it um and the other th- other finding was they <laughs> Very observant. They they measured, I think, how quickly they ate. The participants ate each meals, and um, th- those on the ultra processed food tend to sort of ingest, inhale their, their food, where the um, where the whole food people ate much slower. I think those are probably the two ones that jumped out at me. Any any comments or any other sort of observations you want to add to that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think an important thing to add 
for context is that these people were not asked to eat in any particular way. So they were given, they were provided with enough food. They were provided with more food than they could eat. And they were not told to eat a certain amount or in a specific way. And so uh, they were just eating as much as their appetite was guiding them to eat. So that's, I think, an important piece of context. And as you said, the people eating the ultra-processed food, they immediately increase their calorie intake relative to baseline um, and relative to the unprocessed diet. So there emerged this very large difference in calorie intake between the two that also resulted in divergence of body weight and, and body fatness. Um, I think there are a couple of other things here that are worth mentioning. One is that they tried to design it so that the calorie density was the same That's right. of the two diets, but the way they did that was by including the beverages in their calorie density calculation. And if you actually look at the solid foods, there was actually uh, a pretty substantial difference in uh, in the calorie density. I'm right. looking for the That's spot right. in the paper here because they they drank a, a lot of um, diet soda or soft drink laced with um, <laughs> soluble um, soluble fiber, I think, to try and try and match the fiber yeah. intake. Yeah, here we go. The foods and beverages consumed during the ultra-processed diet had greater energy density than the unprocessed diet. And not really a small effect either. 1.36 kilocalories per gram versus 1.09. Yeah. So, um, so basically what they presented people had similar calorie density, but what people actually ate was not the same. So... I think this is consistent with a larger body of evidence on the impact of calorie density on energy intake. And this is similar to his, uh, he had another trial where he compared a high fat, low carbohydrate diet to a plant-based high carbohydrate right. diet. And people ended up eating, eating more of, of the eating more calories on the high fat diet. and um, there also was a divergence sure. in body weight and body fat because people eating that higher fat, higher calorie density diet were eating more calories than on the plant-based yeah. low, uh, low fat diet. And, and so those two studies, uh, that study, they were more like whole food, even it was sort of keto-ish that was whole food based. Yeah, um, I mean, predominantly. My yeah. recollection is I looked and it wasn't quite as whole food as I as I right. as it had kind of been made out to be. Um, yeah. But it was intended to be a kind of minimally processed right, right. Uh, diet in both conditions. Like basically they were trying to say like best case scenario, if we try to design these diets really well, how does this look? Not not like we're going to compare a you know good version of one to a bad version of another, which is, is what some trials do. Um, so yeah. So in that case too, it followed the energy density. So I think energy density is pretty important. Yep. And I, I think this trial is consistent with that. And you know, the eating rate is 
uh, consistent with that as well. Like energy density. Um, if you're eating something that's denser, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat a larger number of calories in the same amount of time, even eating the same volume of food. And what we can see from the graph is that explains part of the effect. The other part is that they just ate a greater volume in a shorter period of time. And I think like that makes sense. Ultra processed food is just really easy to get down. It's super easy to chew and swallow. Whereas um, unprocessed food, it's just more work. It's more work for your utensils. It's more work for your mouth. It's more work for your digestive tract. And I think it wouldn't surprise me if that is part of the reason why people tend to eat less. And I also want to mention another thing that's important here is that people reported the exact same level of fullness on these two diets. Yeah, right. So hunger, fullness, satisfaction, those were all basically identical between these two diets. So um, people were not feeling hungry on the unprocessed diet. And I think this is very much consistent with um, what other research on satiety has shown and what I talked about in my book is that the brain, like different types of food can satisfy you with different levels of calories. Like your brain is not necessarily going for a certain level of calories to achieve fullness. The number of calories you need to achieve fullness is different depending on which types of foods you're eating. So that's exactly what we see in this trial. People ate diets that differed by 500 calories a day. That's a huge difference. And yet they felt the exact same level of fullness just because they chose different types of foods to eat. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so, yeah, as opposed to back to my main point, technically there can be um, more satiating, less calorie-dense processed foods, and conversely there still could be calorie-dense, unsatiating, less processed foods, as I said, like the, the butter and cheese and everything versus maybe like I think, um, you know, people, there's these ready-made meals now that are, seem quite healthy and got the right macros, nutrients and all that sort of stuff that are health-conscious on the go. Technically, they're ultra-processed, but are they a better option than some sort of really decadent um, meal prepared with butter and salt and et cetera, et cetera? That's sort of my conundrum. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think there, yeah, like I said, you can make baked goods out of very simple ingredients that, in my opinion, are very fattening and unhealthy. So I would, I would think that this Nova classification system would uh, not be a perfect reflection of the fattening or you know, health impacting properties of food. But on the other hand, I think it does correlate broadly with um, the fattening and health impacting properties of food. Yeah. Now for a short break to share a clinical gym. For many of us, 
Symptoms of anxiety are provoked by a heavy workload and other stresses associated with work. This was the case for Stephen, who experienced anxiety and irritability as a result of his high-pressure job. He found it hard to switch off at the end of the day, with a tendency to ruminate, and he complained of tension throughout his body, especially in his neck. Stephen was prescribed a combination of Sisyphus, Kutsu, Magnolia and Passionflower, and was instructed to take it in the morning and again after work. Not long after commencing this regime, he said, My anxiety has eased a lot. It's moved a level of nervous tension I didn't even realise I had, because now I feel like a different person. I'm more carefree and relaxed in general. To learn more about the combination of Sisyphus, Kudzu, Magnolia and Passionflower, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the podcast. All right. Um, so we might move on to this second component, and I'm, I was sort of trying to frame it up like we're exposed to these fattening foods, whether they're ultra-processed or otherwise, you know, calorie-dense. It's very hard to avoid. Maybe genetically we're predisposed to seek these out more or be less satiated. Um, in this, you know, the problems of progress or modernity is we, this is where we're at. Um, one alternative that's emerging is can we sort of, you know, for want of a better term, drug our way out of this a little bit. Um, there's been some really exciting developments with some pharmaceuticals and, and weight loss, and you've, you've uh, authored some great articles, which I'll add the links to, that summarise this. So I wanted to um, get your yeah summary and review and, I suppose, looking to the crystal ball forward, what can we expect? So, um, yeah, even though they've exploded on the scene, it's probably like many sort of developments in science. It's It's been a long time coming and there's a few sort of moments and players in the past that has, um, you know, shaped this. So can you maybe give a bit of a outline on, there's a bit of a check at history as well with um, other pharmaceuticals for weight loss and their failures and the sort of understanding development of these new uh, drugs that seem to work within the brain. Uh yeah. So, do, do you want? Okay, sorry, I'm not question. sure exactly <laughs> what your question is. Sorry. Yeah, could you um, bit of could background you repeat historical, the historical context of weight loss drugs, their their success, uh, their or their failures, and now the emerging su- success of these new okay. ones. Yeah, sure. So, I'm going to broaden the question a little bit to cover it. both pharmacological and non-pharmacological yep. treatment options up to this point. So, um, essentially. Uh, if you look at the data in the United States, I'll use the U.S. as an example because I know the data best, but it resembles the data from many other countries. Right now, 43% of U.S. adults are classified as having obesity. And if you look at the data, you know, that number has, of course, increased over time as it has in almost every part of the world. And if you look at the data, two-thirds of people with obesity attempt to lose weight every year via diet or lifestyle approaches usually. And yet typically these people are, they still, you know, they're not becoming lean. They still have obesity even after that. And so this shows two things. One, most people with obesity would prefer not to have obesity. And two, they're really having a hard time uh, losing weight. 
And if we look at the options that are currently available, you know, I've spent much of my science communication career promoting diet and lifestyle methods for weight management. So I'm very sympathetic to those approaches, but the typical person who has obesity and wants to not have obesity, the typical person who has obesity is not going to not have obesity by going on a diet and mm. exercising. Yeah. They will lose weight, their health will improve, but they are not typically going to go from the obese category into the lean category. So traditional diet and lifestyle based approaches are a partial strategy. They're really helpful for health. They aren't that great for weight loss. If you get a 5% loss of body weight, that's considered pretty good uh, in terms of being able to do that and then maintain it over time. And the same thing if we look at drugs. So drugs for weight loss, um, some of them, the, the kind of more effective ones historically were super dangerous. So we had a drug around the turn of the century, not this past century, but the one before that uh, was called uh, dinitrophenol. And that is an uncoupling. It's a mitochondrial uncoupler. So it causes the little power plants in your cells to just, just waste, spin off and waste energy. Yeah, exactly. And it heats you up. It burns calories and heats you up. And uh, which sounds pretty nice in the winter, but unfortunately it can literally cook you from the inside if you don't take the right dose. And uh, it's very easy to fail to take the right dose with dinitrophenol. And it's actually still being used illegally by um, kind of like fitness Body folks. Building. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's a chemical that is still available industrially. Um, but it doesn't, it's not just a matter of getting the right dose. It causes other effects, even if it doesn't cook you. And the most um, common one is cataracts. It causes people to develop cataracts in their eyes. So it's really, it's really a nasty drug. It was banned in the, uh, like twenties or thirties, I think twenties, thirties or forties. I can't remember exactly. Basically, as soon as they started regulating drugs, they were like, Nope, you can't use this anymore. This is dangerous. Um, and then we have Fen Fen, which was a huge phenomenon in the U S tons of prescriptions written. That was, uh, an anorectic drug reduces calorie intake. It was, it was somewhat effective. Um, but it caused serious cardiovascular complications. So people were getting valve disease at really high rates. And I'm talking about really severe valve disease, like requiring open heart surgery to correct. Um, so this was no, not a trivial side effect at all. And then we have Romanabant, which is a more recent one. That one is, uh, that one came up through the clinical trial pipeline and was looking pretty promising. It wasn't a great drug. It was causing like 5% weight loss. And, uh, it's basically the reverse of marijuana. It's a antagonist at the CB1 receptor or inverse agonist to be more precise. And so basically like does the opposite of marijuana 
And one thing marijuana does is it tends to make people eat more. It gives them the munchies. And uh, so this is like the reverse munchies and it, it made people lose some weight. But as you might expect, you know, people take marijuana recreationally to feel good. And this did the opposite of that. It uh, gave people suicidal ideation and there were some suicides and the drug got pulled. It caused a pretty substantial increase in mental health problems uh, that was considered not worth the amount of weight loss it caused. So you have this like that, this is kind of like, okay, so that that's part of the background. Those are the failed drugs. And then we have the drugs that made it through the clinical trials pipeline and were approved by the FDA and EMA and other regulatory agencies. And those just aren't great drugs. Like we, most of them, I should say, are, are really not great drugs. Like you have uh, naltrexone, bupropion, which is probably one of the more effective ones, causes like 7% weight loss, and it's got all these kind of nasty side effects. They were originally psychiatric drugs, as many weight loss drugs were originally. And um, then you have... Um, gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a lipase inhibitor that causes your gut to not absorb all the fat you eat. Uh, yes. So you poop out about a third of the fat that you eat. And uh, that causes weight loss. It reduces diabetes risk. It just isn't that effective. And it has, as you can imagine, some kind of unpleasant side effects. Um, and and that was kind of the state of things until liraglutide came along. And liraglutide is a, um, it's based on this gut hormone called GLP-1 that is secreted in the distal small intestine when we eat food. And it's a satiety hormone. It causes us to, uh, contributes to feeling full after a meal. And it also increases insulin secretion around a meal to help you metabolize the food that you've eaten. And they created a version of this that lasts longer in the bloodstream and they found that it causes weight loss. And that causes about 7% weight loss. This drug was created by Nova Nordisk. But then uh, they, they messed with it and they tweaked it and they developed a new version of it called semaglutide. And this, is, this drug is like the new sensation. Um, it was just approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. in uh, in June. I don't know the status of it in Australia, but yeah, I think um, it may have been approved. Uh, may have been by, approved. By TGA, yeah. Okay. And uh, it's just incredible. So it causes in clinical trials, it causes between fifteen to eighteen percent loss of body weight. So this is kind of 5% is kind of the threshold for a drug, a weight loss drug to be considered effective. So it's just like completely smashing the threshold for effectiveness and also every other weight loss drug that has regulatory approval right now completely dominates. Um, and it has this really great side effect profile as, as far as we currently know. Um, it causes GI discomfort. So gastrointestinal discomfort, people can get nausea and, uh, vomiting and, uh, 
other kind of digestive discomfort symptoms initially when they go on the drug. But generally, those are not very prominent if you start really low and gradually ramp up. And generally, they don't, they don't stick around. So after you've ramped up and it's been a couple of weeks, after that, most people feel fine in terms of their you know, uh, digestive system. And they start losing a large amount of weight and they feel like they're gaining control of their food intake. Their cravings go way down. Their hunger goes down. Their calorie intake goes down by like 25%. And, uh, and they lose 15 to 18% of their body weight. And um, that is associated, this, this class of drugs also reduces cardiovascular events. That's been shown in randomized controlled trials. It greatly helps with management of type 2 diabetes. That's been shown in randomized controlled trials. And if we look at this class of drugs generally in people with diabetes, it also reduces all-cause mortality. So you're less likely to die if you're on this drug class for many cause if you have type 2 diabetes. So um, as far as we currently know, it seems to have this incredible safety profile I don't want to say that there's no possibility that we'll learn, you know, concerning things in the future, but this has been through trials with tens of thousands of people. And so far it looks really good. It looks in my opinion, way better than any other obesity drug that we've ever, that we've ever seen. How does it compare to bariatric surgery? What sort of percentage are they typically getting? Yeah. Thank you for bringing up bariatric surgery because I should have mentioned that sooner um because obviously that is an option that was available before semaglutide and continues to be available bariatric surgery what you see is about a one-third to a one-quarter loss of body weight for the most common highly effective surgeries which are ruin y gastric bypass and sleeve gastrectomy and if you follow people out for a few years, you tend to see results that are like a quarter, so like somewhere in the ballpark of 25% weight loss. Okay. So so it's getting up there. It's not quite there with the pharmaceuticals, but it certainly crossed that ceiling and threshold. And it's also lasting as well. Like it's helping the set point, would you suggest? Yeah. So you see that people, yeah, the, the, as far as we know from the trials, there's no point at which, you know, the effect wears off and then people bounce back up unless you stop taking it. If you stop taking it, you, you no longer are, you know, getting that biological effect and your weight does creep up. So that's also been shown in trials. Um, but yeah, bariatric surgery is, is, a very effective intervention, but it's irreversible, you know? So you do bariatric surgery and there's a, you know, a certain rate of complications. Uh, it works better for some people than others. You can't change that decision. Whereas semaglutide, the weight loss is not as large, but you can stop taking it at any time if you don't like the cost benefit profile for you. So that's, that's one big advantage. Um, 
Semaglutide is is quite expensive though. Yeah. So I think I think that's worth mentioning, and also worth mentioning that it's. I I don't know how health insurance works in Australia, but here, not everyone's going to be covered. Yeah. Yeah, um, some logistics issues and it's, and it's yeah. an injection or it's a weekly injection. Yep. It's yep. a weekly injection. So yep. there, there are cost issues. There are access issues. The cost issue is particularly bad in the U S it's going to cost about four times more here than it does right. elsewhere. Yeah. And that's kind of how it goes with pharmaceuticals. Um, but it's not going to be cheap anywhere. Yeah. And just on the, it's activity. Um, it's thought to act, as you mentioned, the GI tract releases GLP-1. There's discussion how it actually, um, surprisingly, um, for those that are stuck in the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, it stimulates insulin. Um, but yeah, my point is like there might be some interest in trying to you know, naturally replicate GLP-1 um, production synthesis, but this is more of a pharm- super pharmacological dose that's acting within the brain. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you see with natural GLP-1 release. So you spoke with Randy Seeley, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so I think he, he's suggesting that um, bariatric surgery, like they're trying to mimic bariatric surgery. Um, they, uh, uh, if I recall, it's not through GLP-1, the benefits of bariatric surgery. There's things with bile acids and iron homeostasis and all weird and wonderful things, but there's probably not GLP-1. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's what his studies and rodents suggest. Basically, you can take an animal that doesn't even make GLP-1 or I, I don't remember exactly yeah, how he right. did it, yeah. missing the receptor or missing the hormone. And you can do, you can make it fat and then do bariatric surgery. And it has the same effect as animals that have normal GLP-1 signaling. So I think that's, that's the argument there. And um, yeah. And I think his argument, which I find persuasive is that the amounts of GLP one that you get from food are, it's not really analogous to what you get when you're taking the drug. So there are two kind of mostly separate systems that are acting here. There is the GLP one that's being secreted as a hormone in the gut that's acting on the pancreas and that's acting on other digestive processes. And then there is GLP one that's used for signaling between neurons in the brain in parts of the brain that are important for regulating food intake and body fatness. And if you're just getting GLP one from food from, you know, normal everyday eating food and your guts making it, you have this very short lived hormone that's mostly just acting in the periphery, not so much directly on the brain. But when you take this drug, you're elevating GLP-1 all day and giving such a high dose that you're getting actually into the brain and activating these GLP-1 receptors in the brain. Um, And so you're, you're kind of doing something with this drug that's not really the same as what food induced glp1 would normally do in the body yeah Yeah. the other area i find fascinating in the brain um is yet you mentioned it reduces overall caloric intake um and i don't know if there's a two discrete components but there's our homeostatic eating but all this 
also the hedonic eating pathways, which, you know, make us um, succumb to temptation for all those delicious fat and um, carbohydrate-rich meals. But um, people do report, like, alterations in preference. The other thing I think you mentioned in your articles, some anecdotes, is other sort of, and this is that sort of grey area of food addiction or addiction or, you know, reward, other areas of habituation, if you want to call it, like um, online shopping and so forth, that people have found that's decreased? Yeah, that's right. So just for a little context, it's been my observation that weight loss drugs that are that have some effectiveness often target both homeostatic systems, so system that, that kind of determine our hunger and our body fat regulation, as well as reward systems that determine how seduced we are by certain types of delicious foods. So the reward system and the homeostatic system are kind of what I call those and, um, or energy homeostasis and reward basically. So, um, so if you look at drugs that have been improved in the past, they tend to target these two systems and, those are two systems that have been studied quite a bit for their role in food intake and body fatness. So that kind of makes sense. And then if you look at, um, some aglutide, it also appears to target both of these systems. And that may be one of the reasons why it's so effective. So it clearly reduces calorie intake, seems to reduce your hunger. However, it also reduces cravings quite substantially. And so you might think, okay, well, it makes you less hungry. Obviously, that will affect your cravings because, you know, we tend to crave things more when we're hungry. I'm talking about food cravings, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the whole explanation. That might be part of it. But you also see that people don't want to drink alcohol as much anymore. They don't want to go shopping online as much anymore. So it actually seems to inhibit a wide variety of dopamine fueled behaviors. And so I think it's actually doing more than just cutting your appetite. I think it is both affecting that energy homeostasis system that plugs into appetite and body fat regulation, and it's affecting that reward system that plugs into cravings and, you know, situations where we have a hard time controlling our intake of food. So I think it's I think it's probably doing both of those, yeah. and those are both uh, part of why it's effective. And these GLP one agonist drugs, as is the case for many weight loss drugs, seem to have effectiveness in animal models of drug addiction as well, and they are being tested in um, in humans for smoking cessation right now. That's amazing. Um, just to play the devil's advocate, like they haven't noticed like the, the reverse marijuana effect of like, you know, if you blunt the system too much, then you might get a, a pushback of, you know, low motivation and um, I suppose desire and pleasure and so forth. Like it's taken the edge off, but it's not like there's no reports of depression or, you know, low, low goal seeking and so forth. Yeah, that's a great question. So this is definitely something that I want to learn more about because we, you know, 
you don't want to completely blunt reward, right? I mean, reward is a natural process that is constructive in many settings. Like you don't want to stop, completely stop enjoying food. You don't want to stop being motivated for sex or uh, getting a raise at work or, you know, whatever like constructive activity that you're doing. You don't want to lose your your motivation and zest for that. So I think um, this is a very legitimate concern that I'm keeping my eye on. Um, I haven't seen any signal from the randomized controlled trials that there's any uptick in mental health concerns. Um, <clears throat> I would like to see more data on it. But I think one thing that I find reassuring is that doctors and patients really like this drug. Yeah. That's so if you talk to them, if you talk to people who are using it and you talk to doctors who are prescribing it, typically they will just gush about how much they like it. So I think the impression that I'm getting right now is that the cost benefit profile for the patient is very favorable. Um, that, you know, if this does cause some diminishment of enjoyment, enjoyment of life activities that it's outweighed by the drug's benefits in terms of how the patients are perceiving it. Um, but again, I would like to see more data on it. And I, I don't think that concern has been completely uh, resolved for me. Okay. All right. I know we've been going for a fair while. I've got a couple quick more. We can maybe rattle them off. Um, the other observation you make is there's some bit of like polypharmacy or combinations of semaglutide and some other drugs. And then also another complete category that seems to work more on muscle mass, strangely, which has some has produced some pretty profound weight loss um, results. Can you quickly talk about those couple? Yeah. So the big picture point is that semaglutide is part of this tsunami of new weight loss drugs that are currently in development. And semaglutide is just the leading edge of all these exciting new drugs that I believe are going to profoundly transform the treatment of obesity. And so there are a few of them. Some of them are single drugs like terzepatide is being developed by Eli Lilly. That one had a very successful trial in people with type 2 diabetes. It's probably soon going to be approved by the FDA. Probably causes more weight loss than semaglutide wow. um, on an equivalent dose basis, although it hasn't been tested head-to-head yet. Um, so that's, you know, I think it might, it may or may not be more effective than semaglutide. It probably is a little bit more effective. Um has a similar safety profile, but I think one of the most important things is it's going to create competition. Right now, semaglutide has no competition. Yeah, It's just by far the best drug, is expensive. So we need other drugs on the market that are similarly effective to drive competition. Um, so that's one thing. And then you have Novo Nordisk that is taking semaglutide and combining it with other things like uh, with which is... Uh, modified form of a another gut hormone called amylin and that's another one of these satiety hormones and they published a 20-week 
uh, phase one trial that was just incredible. So they showed that adding cagrillantide to semaglutide almost doubled the amount of weight loss that semaglutide caused. And they stopped it at 20 weeks, which is before um, people hit their weight loss plateau. So we don't know how much weight they ultimately would have lost. But by the end of the trial, I can't remember exactly how much they lost by the end of the trial, but it was it was doubling, almost doubling the semaglutide. It was like 17% or something. Um, <clears throat> and they were still in absolute free fall. So looking at that was the first time when I saw those data, it blew my mind because that was the first time that it ever crossed my mind in my entire life that a drug might cause too much weight loss. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, whoa, maybe we should be careful <laughs> with this combination. We don't want to make them lose too much weight. Let's not make these people get emaciated here. So, I mean, that's like just a frame of mind that is totally foreign to me of worrying about causing too much weight yeah. loss. We were so much in the other direction that, uh, that that kind of blew my mind. I, you know, that's in phase one trials. It's progressing down. Phase one is the the first, the first level it goes through phase three. Um, so right now they're just trying to demonstrate that it's safe. They are progressing it to phase two. Um, I don't know whether it's going to end up in pharmacies. I don't know whether they're going to want to progress it all the way or whether regulatory agencies will approve it. But I mean, it is a proof of principle that you can get bariatric surgery level weight loss using drugs. And, um, or I said, I should say, if we extrapolate the weight loss out, it probably would have caused bariatric level, bariatric right. surgery level right. weight loss yeah. in these people. Yeah. And so that's a proof of principle that that is that that is not only probably possible in principle, but that we're probably not even that far away from it. So that's uh, incredible. And then there's the other drug. Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll I'll talk about one other one before getting to bimagrimab. But uh, there's a an oral GLP one receptor agonist that's been developed. So all these drugs I've talked about so far the um, semaglutide and the cagrillantide and the terzepatide, those are all injected proteins. So they're these protein hormones that you have to inject, which poses a number of problems in terms of manufacturing and cost and cold chain requirements. And people don't like sticking needles in themselves. Um, but... Um, Pfizer, I think, developed an oral small molecule that targets the GLP-1 receptor. And so that, and, and they've put it through, I think, phase one trials, and it looks really good. It looks similar to the, the injected ones. And so, yeah, so I don't know, I don't know what it's going to look like when it goes further down the pipeline. I don't know whether it will ever make it to the pharmacy, but right now it looks really promising based on early trials. Um, so there's definitely potential for it. And again, it's a proof of principle that in theory, you could have a pill like, like taking an aspirin that 
you take and it's cheap and it does the same thing as semaglutide. And you can just have it on a shelf. You can, you know, have it at room temperature and it's cheap to manufacture. So that's a proof of principle that that could be possible to do that. Um, also, so the last one I'll discuss is by Magrumab, which is a, um, that is a, uh, antibody that basically inhibits an injected antibody that basically inhibits a protein that inhibits your muscle growth. So double negative, it basically makes your muscles get bigger. And um, in a recent trial in people with diabetes, it improved their blood sugar control and it made their muscle mass increase, made their lean mass increase. And it uh, unexpectedly, it caused them to get leaner as well they lost about a fifth of their fat mass. Um, actually I'm not sure how unexpected that was, but, um, I wouldn't necessarily have predicted that myself. I'll put it that way. Anabolic steroid sort of amounts of growth, but certainly, um, beneficial, um, hypertrophy for a middle-aged adult. That was my sense. You mean in terms of the amount of 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 lean mass gained? It's not like anabolic steroid (laughs) level, um, lean mass gains. No, no. I mean, I don't, you know, it's interesting with, with steroids. I'm not sure how much muscle mass you would gain if it wasn't paired with resistance resistance exercise. Um, and this was not a resistance training intervention. So I, I don't really know what kind of effect you would get if you started, Mm, you know, pumping iron with this, but, um, I think it increased their lean mass by 4%. And, Assuming that that was primarily from gain in muscle mass, um, since not all of your lean mass is muscle, you would presumably get a bump of more than 4%. But yeah, yeah, we're not talking about a huge increase. Certainly running the other direction to general weight loss protocols where you expect some loss in in lean muscle or lean body mass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if you're if you just go on a diet, you would expect something like a quarter of your weight loss to come out of lean mass. Um and for yeah, so for this intervention, you're actually getting a loss in fat and a gain in lean mass, which is which is pretty awesome. Um so that's another one. We'll see if that actually, you know, makes it to pharmacies, but there is a company that has purchased the rights to develop it for the treatment of obesity. So there are at least some people who believe, who believe in this drug and believe that it could be viable, but we'll, we'll have to see whether it makes it through. But even if it doesn't, I mean, all these things, even, even if none of these make it, I think it is, it illustrates how much is happening right now in uh, the clinical sphere and how much of these drugs and strategies that have been developed in animal models and in basic science are actually now coming to fruition and, uh, you know, creating all of these potentially really effective options for obesity management. So that that's a big change from what it looked like 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for the, um, insights and updates. 
Now I'm gonna I'm breaking your hungry brain rules by I'm um, over over consuming the information that I'm asking from you. We've gone from <laughs> ultra processed food to uh, weight loss drugs. I just want to get a, a third stomach for the um some dessert now. Just quickly, I really want to discuss um if you got a moment your changing gears, your red pen reviews as we just wrap up. Um, yeah, to change gears, you've you've been you're the um, architect of this concept of some objective science-based critiques of popular, uh, as I understand, solely diet books and maybe it'll extend it elsewhere. But there's, as we all know, there's a lot of um, bold and wild claims out there. Everyone's, many people have authored books and um, I don't think book sales uh, have objective, you know, reviews. They're all five-star, but then you read them and some of it's pretty poor. Um, so you've created this service to better objectively review some of these popular books. Can you explain or add, edit, adjust what I've just said there? Yeah. So Red Pen Reviews publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of nutrition books available anywhere. And the way we do that is we have a team of expert reviewers that applies a structured, semi-quantitative review method that's the same for every book. And so we what that means is that we're numerically scoring books across three different categories one is scientific accuracy one is reference accuracy so how accurately are they using the information they cite and the third one is healthfulness so is the advice in the book yeah okay. likely to to be good for you and um and yeah, so we have this semi-quantitative scoring system that allows us to, as consistently and objectively as possible, rate the information quality in these books. And then once we've done that, it, we, we generate these um, scores that can be compared between different books. So you can compare reviews in an apples-to-apples -apples way instead of, you know, if you're Let's say you want to figure out what's the best diet book that is relevant to vegan diets and you just start Googling. You're going to find different reviews from different people uh, that were conducted in different ways and went to different depths and probably none of them did any citation checks. And you're not going to be able to do an apples to apples comparison between those different reviews because they're not at all consistent. So if you go onto our site, you can directly compare between books and you can say, well, this book, you know, I'm looking for a book that has very high scientific accuracy. And so I'm going to select the book on my topic of interest that they've reviewed that has the highest scientific accuracy or the highest overall score or, you know, et cetera. And so this, this review method has a number of advantages over typical reviews one, most typical reviews, they're not really scientifically evaluating the claims in any rigorous way. Two, book reviews almost never check the references. They almost never do citation checks, which in my opinion is just a basic aspect of evaluating a book. And um Three, the people who are writing these reviews, even in respected media sources, usually don't have expertise on the subject. And so like 
the, they can be persuaded very easily by these books that might be using misleading information. So basically, you know, there's a lot of misinformation in popular nutrition books and those books are not generally getting reviewed in rigorous ways that the public can access. So that's what we're that's what we're trying to fix. Yep. So you've got I don't know maybe a dozen books reviewed on there. You got the the sort of more rotten tomatoes overall score, just a quick snapshot. Yeah. But if the reader wants more, they can dive into a much more expansive um, discussion. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the key strengths of our method is you can land on a book review page and literally within five seconds you have very useful information about the quality of that book just by looking at the score bars at the very top. They're color-coded. It's very easy to, to interact with. But then if you're like, hmm, I want to make sure that they did a good job. I want to make sure that I agree with their conclusions. You can go down. You can see exactly what, how we scored everything. You can see page numbers and quotes from the book. You can link right through. We link to all the scientific literature we cite. You can just click right through to everything. Um, and we have explanations of our reasoning for every score. So you can go down to whatever level of detail you want to go. Or if you don't want the detail, you can just get the top line in literally seconds. Yep. And obviously this um, requires expertise and resources. So um, I presume you'd, you'd love some support from their listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, donations are always welcome if you like what we do. And for anyone who is listening who has a master's degree or higher in a field relevant to the types of books that we review, so especially nutrition, but also obesity uh, and other health topics that are relevant to what we review, um, if you're interested in what we do, you can apply to be a reviewer. We have a, a really great dedicated team of people and we would love to, to add to it. Brilliant. All right, we'll put the links to um, all that in the show notes. Stefan, I think I'm satiated with all your information. It's uh, incredible. <laughs> I really love it. Um, yeah, maybe another 18 to 24 months, there might be some more updates I'd love to, to pick your brains about, but I really appreciate your time. You've got this great ability to, to synthesize and, and communicate the, this difficult but, yeah, absolutely fascinating area. So thanks again. Um, and the book's Hungry Brain. Just Google it. Any um, all the sort of major book suppliers. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know about Australia, but I know in the U S you could get it from any major book supplier. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember where I got mine from, but, uh, yeah, it's not, on, there's no audio version yet. Is there, I'm a bit of, there a is. Oh. Yes. Um, I recommend the book version just cause, um, the, uh, audio, I, I'm I'm not crazy about how they did the audio, but ah, okay. uh, it is available at least in the U.S. I don't know for a fact that it's available in Australia, but I know the book is um, licensed and available in Australia. Yep. So yep. I'm not yep. sure whether the audio version is no, is I'm, available there. I've lent my copy at too many times to count. <laughs> to <laughs> encourage them to buy their own. Um, brilliant book! Congratulations! Thanks again for your time really fascinating and um yeah perhaps we can catch up again in the future great all right thank you for useful links and resources 
make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.